Hello, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, as always, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Dr. Bianca Azevedo. She is an instructor at New York University. She is a social neuroscientist whose research focuses on the neural bases of attachment, caregiving, sensory processing sensitivity, and mind-body intervention. So, Dr. Azevedo, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to everyone. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. So let's start with uh, attachment. So what is attachment from a social neuroscientific perspective? Attachment is the close emotional and cognitive relationship representation of another person. Mm. So uh, could you perhaps elaborate a little bit more on that? So how does it manifest, for example, when it comes to romantic relationships? Yeah, what we, um, what we see with respect to attachment is a close emotional and cognitive bond so that the individuals feel a sense of comfort and security when they're together. They show activation in areas related to um, uh, social bonding, areas that are rich in oxytocin and vasopressin, which are neurohormones that are associated with um, attachment-related behaviors, like making a nest together or living together, traveling together, grooming, um, taking care of one another, playing together. So not just caregiving, um, but also having fun. Um, and the liking of the other person is is generally associated with attachment. So attachment relationships are, you know, think of a, a good friend or a, 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 um, a family member that you like spending time with, like your a brother or a sister that you, um, you know, where you get together, maybe you, you do fun activities, you watch movies, you know, you, um, you, you feel a sense of calm and security around such individuals, but uh, you trust them. You trust is also associated with oxytocin. Um, and you also enjoy uh, other um, activities besides just kind of care and, and rest. Um, playing together is also important for attachment bonds. And what about romantic love specifically? I mean, how should we understand it from a neuroscience, from the perspective of neuroscience? Yeah, so romantic love is, is different from, from general attachment because it doesn't always necessarily, in some cases it does, for people that are in healthy relationships, it, it comes together with the feelings of attachment, of warmth and security and friendship. Um, but romantic love is is different because it does call upon other other systems of of the brain um, and other uh, neurotransmitters and other chemicals that are associated with higher energy like dopamine. So and and um, so these are you know generally what we would see in behaviorally in the person is feelings of um, excitement, you know, sometimes in the beginning of relationships, infatuation, so the person can't stop thinking about the other person. They become very focused on the one person, so they're not, you know, thinking about other people. Um, and and um, 
and high energy and excitement, sexual behavior, and feelings of euphoria. So all of these, you know, and for some humans, like the humans we've been studying who are together for many years and still report having intense romantic love for their long-term partner, they show both. So they show, um, they show characteristics of both the high intensity romantic love and attachment. Mm -hmm. So romantic love can, can exist in long-term relationships. Yes, that's right. Mm -hmm. That's uh, exactly right. Yeah, yeah. For some, for some individuals, it lasts. They continue to have uh, feelings of excitement and focus and sexual uh, satisfaction and, and intensity. They get excited to be together. They want to be together with the calm of attachment, with the you know feelings of a, a sense of security with the person. Like this is the person you want to be with the most. Like being with the you know, like a good friend, but also with with the element of, of excitement and, and sexual activity. Are there specific areas of the brain that are associated with romantic love and distinguish it from other kinds of attachment? Yeah, that's a great question. So generally, um, what we find with respect to romantic love and how it's um, distinct from attachment are these high dopamine, high dopamine areas like the ventral tegmental area, um, are our classic kind of you know um, romantic love associated findings where we don't necessarily see it with a close friend. Mm -hmm. So uh, I mean, there's this idea that people who are more on the sociological side of things, let's say, say that uh, romantic love is mostly a Western phenomenon, but is that really the case or does it exist across different cultures? Yeah, romantic love is universal. Hmm. Um, the um, cultural and societal expectations of how to engage in romantic relationships does vary by culture. We, we do have evidence that there are some cross-cultural differences in displays of romantic love, but the basic drive to be with one other person is universal. Mm -hmm. And what is the role that altruism plays in romantic relationships? We, ha um, we found that um, individuals who were more res um, responded in a way that they had higher altruism towards their partner showed greater activation in areas related to attachment. So, um, you know, it, it could be a, a um, important for keeping people together and vice versa, where people that stay together are more altruistic towards each other. They're, they um, don't see as many differences between one and the other. But uh, we do have evidence that they're, that people do discriminate, so that they may respond differently to the needs of a close other, like a partner versus a stranger mm -hmm. in, in, in the brain. Yeah. So earlier we talked about how some people still feel romantic love even in the very long term. But does mar marital satisfaction really need romantic love as an ingredient or is that not necessary? But I think um, 
people who we do have evidence um, that romantic love is associated with greater marital satisfaction. Mm -hmm. it, it may not be necessary, but those who report higher levels of romantic love also report higher being more satisfied in, in their marriages. Mm -hmm. uh, with the knowledge we have from neuroscience about romantic love, is it in any way possible to predict relationship outcomes from uh, brain activity? We have um, a small amount of evidence suggesting that uh, brain responses in newlyweds and people in early stage romantic love can predict outcomes. So in one study we examined newlyweds um, during the first year of marriage, so they were just recently married. We scanned them around the time of marriage and then one year later and we found that some of the neural activity around the time of the wedding did predict their romantic love scores one year after. There is an, um, some other evidence with early stage romantic love that there was some uh, pattern of neural activation that could predict whether the uh, couple stayed together or not 40 months later. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very interesting. So let's talk about another topic of your research, sensory processing sensitivity. Uh, what is it? Sensor, uh, it's a biological trait that's associated with greater awareness of the environment, greater attunement to subtleties in, in, in stimuli in the environment and other people. So these individuals are more overall attuned um, and aware to their environment and as a result they're more responsive. So it, responsive internally, meaning that they are registering information from all the various things that are going on, um, including other people. So they, they're more sensitive to other people's moods and so forth. Mm -hmm. uh, and does it have a genetic basis, for example? Um, that's a good question. Um, I think that, you know, people are still gathering data for the, the genetic basis. There's, you know, some mixed evidence. There has been some research showing a dopamine gene associated with it and mixed evidence regarding serotonin. So I think hopefully in the upcoming years we'll have a better idea of what the genetic basis is. And are there specific brain areas associated with it or not? Um, we, we do find that there are certain patterns of neural activity. Um, we see activation in some areas when people are responding to general emotional stimuli or when their brain is at rest as a function of high sensitivity. So generally um, areas related to higher order cognition um, and also the insula we, we found in a study of, of sensitivity in response to different um, emotions. <clears throat> including general emotional stimuli and other people's emotional facial expressions. Um, we also see evidence um, in the brain at rest. Um, just, you know, when people are asked to, you know, just relax, don't do anything. Um, in association with sensitivity, we see at, at more activity in areas related to memory and, um, and, and after they've done some sort of emotionally engaging task. Is it associated with any specific mental disorders? Um, there is some evidence that um, 
high sensitivity is associated with in adults with um, higher levels of depression, anxiety, burnout, neuroticism. Yeah, so it, it yeah, in adults it, do, it does tend to be associated with um, with affective disorders. But, but I mean, this sort of process, sensory processing sensitivity is not itself a disorder, or is it? No, it's not a disorder. It's um, the reason, uh, it's not a disorder. And, and what, what the evidence suggests is that um, the uh, impact of the environment on the individuals contributes to the higher prevalence of the, um, for example, depression and anxiety in highly sensitive individuals. Mm -hmm. So I would like to ask you then, since you do work in social neuroscience, uh, how do these intersect? I mean, how does social psychology intersect with neuroscience and how do they come together? Well, um, so we're we're interested in the um, study of 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 the social the the mechanisms that underlie social behavior, and and some of those mechanisms may be neural activity, they may be genetic factors, but we're you know what what the focus is is the understanding of the neural mechanisms that underlie social behavior and social dispositions. Mm -hmm. So, uh, before we go, would you like to tell people where they can find your work on the internet? Sure, yeah, I do have a personal website and I update it every so often so you can find a lot about my research, um, research papers, uh, different um, media that have uh, published on my research and a link to my blog as well as a link to the Highly Sensitive Brain book. Um, it's, a, it's a book that discusses the theory research on high sensitivity. Mm -hmm. Very well. I will be leaving links to that in the description box of the interview. And Dr. Azevedo, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. It's been a real pleasure to talk. Thank you, Ricardo, for having me. It's a pleasure as well. And if you have any questions, feel free to follow up. If any of your viewers have any questions about these different issues, feel free to look me up on the web. My website is biancaacevedo.com. And if you have any questions, feel free to reach out. Okay, thank you. Hello, everybody. Thank you for watching this episode until the end. To keep the channel sustainable, I would like to ask you to please visit my Patreon page and consider making a pledge there, starting at $1 per month. You also have links to PayPal. Otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share it, leave a like, and hit the subscription button. The show is brought to you by Enlights, learning and development done differently. Check their website at enlights.com. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters, Karen Litzke and Blanchett Perga, Larson, Lau Guerrero, Francis Fordens, Frederick Sunder, Ricardo Vladimir, Craig Healy, Adam Castle, Olaf, Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, Jacob Klinkby, Matthew Whitting, Bird Arnold Wolf, Tim Hollis, Erika Lenya, John Connors, Paulina Barron, Philip Force Connolly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Gintis, Bo Weingarder, Becca Neuberger, Goldstein, Dan Demetri, Robert Windegar, Rui Nassi, Arthur Coe, Zup, Marco Neves, 
o Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Colombo, Jorge Pinha, Phil Cavanagh, Corey Clark, Mark Blythe, Roberto Inguenzo, Michael Stormir, Samuel Andreff, Tiago Nunes, Bernardo Uniga, Alexander Dunbauer, Fergal Cusson, Evan Bodrenko, Hal Herzog, Don Ross, Jonathan Leibrand, Oslan Bullut, Nathan Nguyen, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, J.W., João Weira, Tom Hamel, David Sloan Wilson, Yassila Dez Araújo, Eden Solon, Romain Roach, Dermiti Grigoriev, Diego Londonio Correa, Tom Roth, Yannick Punter, Adan Rosmani, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pavel Ostasevsky, Nelek Bach, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, Al Ortiz, Guy Madison, Gary G. Elman, João Linhares, Lida Cosmidi, Saima Fzal, Adrian Yegi, Nick Golden, Paulo Tolentino, João Barbosa, Jules Price, Edward Hall, Edin Bronner, Franca Bortolotti, Gabriel Pons Cortez, Ursula Litska, Dennis Cook, Scott, Zachary Fish, Tim Duffy, Todd Shackleford and Sunny Smith. My producers is our web, Jim Frank, Lucas Tafiniak, Ian Gilligan, Luis Caetano, Tom Vanag, Dam Curtis Dixon, John Linhares, Benedict Mueller, Vega Guidi, Sardos France, Thomas Trumbull and Nuno Welder and my executive producers, Michel Rugieski, Rosie, James Pratt, Matthew Lavender, Sergio Quadriano and Bogdan Canivet. Thank you for all.